Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. So if you have a copy of God's Word, join me in the New Testament in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It is Easter Sunday. Christ is risen. That's something we say to each other on a day like today. In fact, sometimes we forget that this day is every seven days, going all the way back 2,000 years ago to the ancient world. It's the very reason that uh, those first Christians who were before they were Christian Jewish actually changed their primary day of worship from the Sabbath, the last day of the week, to the first day of the week is because they believed it was Resurrection Sunday. Now, this is a, a special Resurrection Sunday because it happens in concurrence with that particular time of year. But the gospel accounts tell us that Jesus rose from the dead that he preached to upwards of 5,000 people, and that everything else that happened afterwards was a direct result of that powerful encounter with the resurrected Jesus, whether it was their powerful witness or the day of worship changing. And so here's a question I want to ask this morning. Two questions, really. Is it true, and what difference does it make? Is it true that this actually happened and, and what difference does it make? There's a book that came out roughly 20 years ago, pretty riveting fictional novel if you're into fiction. It was entitled A Skeleton in God's Closet. Told the fictional story of some scholars that had dug up a, a, a letter, if you will, an ancient letter. They'd found it in Palestine in a cave and they had confirmed that it was written by the disciple Thomas, the doubter, to the disciple Peter, instructing Peter as to where the body should be kept. And you can imagine that would trigger all kinds of emotions, all kinds of uh, fear and other sorts of emotions. Those who discovered the letter thought, well, maybe it's just a hoax. That is until they find in this novel the body of a 33-year-old crucified man precisely where the letter said he would be found. And so the rest of that novel is really the description of rising anxiety as Christians around the world fear the worst that this might actually be the body of Jesus of Nazareth. So just by way of introduction this morning, I want to I ask my Christian brothers and sisters, I know that not everybody that shows up to an Easter service is Christian, and for those of you who are not, I'm so glad you're here. I hope you enjoy yourself being in the company of followers of Jesus, but I want to aim this first question at my brothers and sisters in Christ. What does it do to you to ponder the fact that all this might just be a hoax? And, and I say that not to be a bummer on Easter. Some of you may think, man, we got up dressed up in our pastels and everything. And you're going to drop this stuff on us. But one philosopher reminds us that actually part of what makes a belief valuable in itself is that it could theoretically be falsified. If absolutely nothing could dissuade you from believing something, anything really, then whatever that particular belief is, it's just not worth very much. I say that because there have been suggestions over the years that perhaps it doesn't matter whether or not Jesus actually was raised from the dead, that Christianity could still be valid. It's actually one of the arguments postulated in the novel. People that would insist our faith is valid, even if the story of Jesus' resurrection is true, I would just 
point out that the majority of those people live in the Western world in a very defined part of the world like the United States of America or like Europe. The, the vast majority of people in the two-thirds world in Latin America and Africa and East Asia and all over pretty much every other continent who follow Jesus, well, they know better. And John Wolvert, I think, spoke well for that majority many years ago when he said the following, from the standpoint of an apologetic for Christian theology, belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God stands or falls with the question of his resurrection. There are a lot of other people, I will just tell you, who agree with Wolvert, and that includes the apostles who gave us the New Testament. And that brings us to 1 Corinthians 15. No doubt in this preacher's mind this morning that Christ is risen. That's not just some fanciful thing to make us feel good or jack up our emotions. It actually happened in history. But this morning, I want you to see how utterly dependent all of us who confess Christ are on that belief. Paul's going to issue three challenges to us here in 1 Corinthians 15. And the first one is to simply understand the importance of this teaching. Understand the importance of its veracity, the fact that it actually happened. The late Francis Schaeffer used to say, ideas have consequences. If you have an idea that you can fly and you actually put that to the test by jumping off a roof, there are going to be consequences to that. And Paul gives us a list of some consequences to our faith if the resurrection of Jesus is in fact untrue. And there are uh, five of them, beginning with this one. He says, if the resurrection is untrue, preaching is worthless. How's that for an occupational hazard for someone like me? He starts in verse 12 saying, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And so this, this picture of something being in vain is actually a verbal analogy of something being emptied of all meaning. If Jesus is not alive, the entire Christian faith, Paul says, is emptied of any meaningful content. Earlier in this letter, chapter 1, verse 18, he said the, the word of the proclamation of the cross is the power of God to those who are being saved. Here he says, if Jesus is still dead, then the proclamation of that faith is dead as well. It's worthless. It's in vain. It's emptied of all meaning and purpose. That means every sermon that every guy in my line of work or every great evangelist or missionary has ever preached is worthless. Uh, also, it means every time you've ever sat through an experience like this, you may as well get up, go ahead and leave and eat your ham today. Hunt your eggs, do whatever you're going to do, because what we're doing right now is a total waste of your time. Because preaching is worthless. Secondly, because faith is worthless. He says, your faith in verse 14 is in vain. So what you do in service to the Lord Jesus is in vain. If there's no resurrection, if Jesus isn't who he claimed to be, there is nothing and no one to believe in. That means furthermore, thirdly, truth is worthless. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Jesus isn't alive, then for the last 29 years, I've been lying to people. That's what he's saying. And all of us who are Christian are false witnesses to a false religion. 
I think it's important to realize, especially in the evangelical tradition where we rightly teach so often that it matters what is true and what is false and that we should always examine what is true and what is false and that in the context of that discussion and that reality, we are tempted immediately to move to our neighbors and other religions, but our own apostle is calling us to take a breath before we go there and say, possibly you might need to examine your own faith first. You might need to examine your own Because if Jesus isn't alive, our message is not just false. It's dangerous to our well-being because it means that salvation is worthless. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So this is pretty simple. If Christ is not raised from the dead, if he has not vindicated his identity by his victory over death, hell, and the grave, death still reigns. That means his work was incomplete. It was a failure. It means our sins that separate us from God remain. And it means, furthermore, not a single soul on earth can be redeemed. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 4 that he was raised for our justification. There's this inextricable link between our being saved and the bodily resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection It isn't just some romanticized description of our faith. It's the basis for our salvation. Without it, our sins can't be forgiven. If Jesus isn't alive, then all of us are still under the eternal consequences of our sin and the the judgment of God. And that would mean, finally, that any hope we have in this world is worthless. In verse 18, he says, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied, which says everything that you hope for on the basis of your faith is non-existent. If Christ is not raised, then my hope for my eternity, my hope in this life, it's not just a cruel illusion. We are the most pitied victims of perhaps the greatest April Fool's joke that's ever been played in all of human history. So here's the big idea. There's an awful lot riding on this. I mean a lot, okay? And it's why I'm utterly amazed to find people in the world today who will claim to follow Jesus but who think this to be an irrelevant fact to that point. Maybe you are here today and you're a skeptic to the faith, but you're here because a family member invited you. I'm, now, I'll just tell you, not only am I glad you're here, I actually respect you more than some of the folks that might call me brother or sister who say this doesn't matter. Because you and I, though we may disagree on the facts of history, on, on who Jesus was and what he did and the difference he can make, we agree on this. It matters whether or not something's actually true. It matters. And Paul is emphasizing that to us here and telling us, that, that this is necessary. And what's interesting to me is, is to just postulate the host of theories that are out there who say, uh, of people who say, you know, maybe this didn't happen, but if it didn't happen, it'll be totally fine. Well, if it didn't happen, then exactly what happened? What was it that happened 2,000 years? Something happened. We're all here. I don't know about you, I'm Scottish ancestry. My people be worshiping Thor right now. If something Hadn't happened 2,000 years ago. So what was it, in fact? Some people hold to something called a swoon theory. They say, well, actually what happened, because everybody knows that nobody comes back from the dead. I mean, that just doesn't happen. So here's what we think probably happened, that he didn't actually die on the cross, that 
after he had had nails driven here and here and into his feet and a sword into his side and had been beaten to an unrecognizable pulp. His back looks like hamburger meat, all that stuff. Just beaten relentlessly. He hung there. Best we can tell, he was the last to die. They put him in the tomb thinking he was dead, but really what happened is he was passed out. And, and, And listen, People being raised from the dead, that don't happen. But it's entirely possible that this beaten, bruised man figured out how to get up and push this multi-ton stone out of the way and fight off the Roman soldiers and get himself outside the tomb and put on enough makeup to make himself pretty enough that people would look at him and think that he was risen from the dead. Swoon theory. Stolen body theory. The Roman soldiers guarding that tomb somehow allowed the disciples to get past them. And they stole his body. Well, they were responsible for the security of that tomb under penalty of death. And they were armed. So just something to think about there. Additionally, once the persecution started, don't you think somebody would have given up the body? I'm just asking some questions here, right? I mean, Peter's already squealed once. We already know he's a little weasel, right? You know him. I don't know him. I have never... Yeah, I mean, I mean, can you imagine Peter? He is risen from the dead. No, he's not. And you need to give us the body. I'm not giving you the body because he's risen from the dead. Here I stand. God help me. I can do no other. We're going to crucify you. It's buried over there. <laughs> right? What turned these people fearless? What did that? Mass hallucination is another theory. Well, it happens. Now, it's a lot easier for it to happen today because of the internet and social media. They call it social contagion, this idea of belief that just kind of spreads rapidly and and widely. But this may come as a surprise to you. There was no Facebook in the first century. And so the only way this could have happened, it could have happened, but the only way it could have happened is for all of them together to have experienced this and this rapid sort of widespread. And we are told by the ancient documents he he would be seen actually physically witnessed by 500 people. I don't think there's that many mushrooms in Jerusalem. I'll just throw that out there. My favorite one of all time is by a theologian named Alfred Whitehead, who subscribes to something called the decomposition theory, which says that because of the coolness of the tomb and the chemicals and the way it interacted with body and all that, the entire body of Jesus completely decomposed in less than 36 hours. Now, I don't know how to respond to that except to say, I think it takes less faith to simply believe in the resurrection. Just going to throw that out there. And with all these theories being postulated, those making them forget, you know, if any of them are true, then your faith is not. It's not. We've got to understand the importance of this. It matters that this happened If for no other reason, then secondly, we need to recognize its benefits. Paul will finish this section of 1 Corinthians 15, punctuating it with the very positive words of verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Guys, no other theory in my mind makes as much sense as this one. How do you explain hopeless disciples suddenly and boldly proclaiming the message of Jesus? How do you you explain devout Jewish believers no longer worshiping primarily on the Sabbath, but on the first day of the week? How do you explain persecuted believers who simply refuse to stop talking about their resurrected Savior? How do you explain women being the first people to ever preach the gospel? 
that he was raised from the dead. Listen, if you're making up a story in the first century, you don't put women in it. Their testimony was not seen as valid in a courtroom. How do you explain that? Roman soldiers with no explanation under penalty of death as to what happened to the body except that perhaps they were sleeping. Early Jewish scholars like Josephus admitting that little else could explain how this radical little band of women and peasants and household slaves, 90% of whom were illiterate, somehow turned the world completely upside down. It just makes sense. And this morning, I stand here telling you not only that he is risen, but that that same power is available to us. It's available to us. And it provides us assurance of our own resurrection. Paul goes on in verse 21, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also has, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, all die. So also in Christ, all shall be made alive. You ever wonder what will happen with you at death? I mean, really wonder? Sometimes you think, but you know, when, when you're in your 20s, you're invincible, right? You, you get to be my age and you start thinking, thinking about it a little more, but you, then you figure, ah, it's several decades off, God willing. But if you ever wondered, what happens to you at death? Let me share with you this morning on the authority of God himself that when you put your trust in Jesus, you enter into a union with him that is so strong and so unbreakable, you can be sure that you too have a resurrection coming. A resurrection to life. But, but here's the thing. Every bit of this is based on his rule. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming with those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. He's using an agricultural analogy here. This first fruits language was describing the pledge that our Jewish neighbors would bring to their harvest, and it was given to the Lord, so the whole harvest would follow. Paul says Jesus' death and resurrection was kind of like that. It's the first fruits, it's the down payment, if you will, on an entire cosmos that belongs to him. And that there's coming a day in the future when he will return and with him all who follow him to claim what belongs to him. No more United Nations, no more Ukraine, no more Russia, no more NATO, no more United States of America. No need for any of those borders any longer. As Zechariah tells us, he will speak peace to the nations and his rule will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. But he won't just rule then. Jesus through his own words in the Gospels, reminds us he rules right now. All authority, he said in Matthew 28, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I know the world sometimes looks pretty dark. I know it's hard to believe that a sovereign and a good God could be in control of some of the mess that we see in this world. I know it seems like Jesus is absent from the field sometimes, but according to God's word, it only seems that way. This one who was raised from the dead right now is the sovereign ruler over all of history, and that prompts the most important question anybody in this room is ever going to ask themselves. What is your relationship to him? What is it? What's the status of it? Because he will ultimately be victorious. Verse 25, he must reign 
until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. The last enemy that you will ever face in this world is death. And you're going to lose that battle. And so will I. But Jesus rose from the dead. And what that means for you and me is that he's given you a way, even in losing that battle, to win the war. Unless, of course, you're on the other side of him. And that's one of the unfortunate things things we read about the resurrection of Jesus is that Jesus has friends and Jesus has enemies. Jesus doesn't have anybody on the fence. All this points to something very grave, that there may actually be enemies of God in this room. I know it probably doesn't seem like it. Most of you seem pretty nice to me. It's Easter Sunday. I don't smell any of you. I'm assuming y'all took a bath last night or this morning. You're dressed up a lot nicer than you usually do. Some of our pastoral staff were making fun of me because I look nicer than I usually do on Sunday morning. Family photos, dinner, all those kind of things. But if you have not turned from your sins and placed your faith in this risen Lord and given given him your life, you are not surrendered to him. And when you are not completely surrendered to a sovereign, that makes you his enemy. There was a man named Judas He was wealthy, smart, trusted with the disciples' treasury, spent three years walking with Jesus, hearing the teaching of Jesus, witnessing the miracles of Jesus, but ultimately was not a follower of Jesus. All that got revealed when he betrayed Jesus. And then he hung himself, and ever since that moment, he's been suffering. And my friend, if it is possible for a man to be that close to dip from the same bowl and still face the judgment of God, it's possible to be dressed up in church on Easter Sunday morning and be an enemy of God. But the good news is this, it does not have to be this way. It doesn't. Let's fast forward to verse 58 and look at Paul's challenge to just live in the light of this historic truth. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, the, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So what, what does this all mean, and, and, and how do we respond to it? Well, he says, first of all, we just simply need to be faithful. Remain seated and fixed on this truth. The word often is a metaphor for tenaciousness. Be immovable. Jesus in history died and rose again, and the evidence for this is overwhelming, and you can believe it. You can stake your life on it. You can stake the next life on it. And in light of this powerful truth, you can remain steady on course no matter what happens to you. Whatever the circumstances of your life, you can remind yourself, Christ is risen. Hallelujah. So be faithful in that. Be functional, he says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. 
If you're a teacher, a physician, a business owner, a leader in government, an elected official, and you're a part of this covenant family, you know we encourage you all the time to see that as the work of the Lord. That doesn't mean you're trying to bring other people and force them under your schematic. It means that you personally, in that work, are submitting yourself and your whole heart and your whole life to King Jesus because all of those areas belong to King Jesus. And Paul finally says, do all that in confidence, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Now, how in the world could that be true unless he rose from the dead in history? But Scripture tells us he has. The overwhelming evidence of history tells us that he has. And nothing you do for him is going to be without its reward. G.B. Harding, the Canadian scientist, said, I was searching for a religion. I was searching for the truth. And in the midst of all that, I, I was just simply asking myself two questions. Question number one, has anybody ever conquered death? And question number two, have they provided some way for me to do it? And so with those two questions in his mind, he launched out on a search. He visited all the places of all the great religious leaders, and the founders of all the great world religions and all the great philosophers of the world looking for truth. And he said, I found a lot of wisdom in all of those places. I found a lot of good things in all of those places. But the interesting thing, the commonality between them all is that the tombs of every single one of them were filled until I got to the tomb of Jesus. And when I found it empty, I immediately went to the New Testament and I read these words, because I live, you will live also. And my search is over. This morning, your search can be over. There is not a soul in this room who will not die. There's not a soul in this room who is going to escape the judgment seat, the throne of God. But Jesus is alive and because of that, there is also not a soul in this room that cannot today have eternal life. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the fact that Christ is risen. Lord, this is not mere sentimentality for us. We believe that it actually happened. We believe that it makes a difference. We believe that it makes a difference in eternity. And so, Father, as our elders and deacons gather under these crosses, as our musicians come, we pray that these next few moments would be moments in which your Holy Spirit would move, would convict, would stir hearts. And Father, that people would come, that they would turn from their sins, that they would put their faith and their trust in you. So Lord, ready our hearts for these next few moments. Move, Holy Spirit, and do what only you can do in these moments. I make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.